How have you applied your philosophies and methods to your own life? And what difficulties have they helped you overcome? I'll start by talking about philosophies. I took several philosophy classes in college, and I found that what I was doing was attempting to establish psychological security within a philosophical viewpoint. I had continued to do this throughout my entire life to the point of finding a way to perceive the world through a kind of poetic, material, reductionist viewpoint. While this did give me comfort, there was still this underlying anxiety, and I was unable to really relieve that anxiety until I came upon Jeddu Krishnamurti's work, in which he guides people through a way of thinking that is really a kind of intellectual yoga in which you arrive upon a philosophy to end all philosophies. It is really a way of recognizing that philosophies in themselves are a means of trying to gain psychological security, whether consciously or unconsciously. And if you can consciously walk yourself through the recognition of this and face the fear, the existential fear, essentially the fear of death, and also the fear of loss, then you can come out the other side of it stronger and ironically more secure by having recognized that no security was actually there to begin with. As far as methods that I've used, the primary methods that really gave me psychological relief in moments of anxiety in the day were breathing exercises. And the first introduction to breathing exercises that I really noticed changed my mental state were breathing exercises given to me by Wim Hof. However, I've adapted his approach so that one can go at a pace that's appropriate for them. And in many cases, it is great to actually do breathing exercises guided live. And if you're not going to do it live, it's pretty important to actually emphasize that people shouldn't push too hard when it comes to inhaling at an increased velocity. Very often this is mistaken as hyperventilating, but hyperventilating involves forcing air in and out. But in the Wim Hof method, you actually put a lot of effort into the inhale, but absolutely zero effort into the exhale. And that's quite key. However, it can be easy to get into a feeling that you want to go at the same pace as the teacher or as other students in a particular workshop or class. And that can cause you to push harder than you really need to in order to gain the benefits that you'll want. What role do you think BDSM and DS dynamics can serve in personal inquiry and enlightenment? And by DS, it's like capital D slash lowercase s. That means dominant slash submissive. So what role do you think BDSM and DS dynamics can serve in personal inquiry and enlightenment? So first of all, I just want to emphasize that enlightenment's a tricky word, and it can imply a lot of things that 
evoke superstition, but in this case, I'm just going to address this question and in doing so, define enlightenment as simply becoming aware and perceiving with clarity and not having a soundtrack or background or monkey mind chattering in the background of your mind as you are trying to be aware of the world. If you have an inner dialogue running as you're trying to listen to somebody else's dialogue, technically you are not listening fully. Your perception is split. So even now, as you, the reader or listener, are attending to this material, it's quite likely that you have a dialogue that's occurring at this time. It's actually kind of rare that people have complete inner silence occurring consistently. So enlightenment in this case is just simply turning on a light switch and being able to fully see what is occurring in the present moment to a greater degree. It doesn't have to mean to the absolute fullest degree, but just to an increasing degree. You're becoming more enlightened. And enlightenment is kind of presented as a final destination. And I think that can be quite problematic as well because awareness is an ongoing thing. And so we constantly turn on new light bulbs in our journey through life and through understanding the world we live in. So now that I've established that definition, I'll repeat the question again. What role do you think BDSM and DS dynamics can serve in personal inquiry and enlightenment? So I think one of the most fascinating things about BDSM is that you can explore a side of yourself that in other contexts can often be something that society at large has determined is a taboo or that you yourself have perhaps determined is a taboo. Thus, you're exploring a space and a relationship in which you can be dominant or submissive to a degree and in a particular way that you have not felt either comfortable being before or simply haven't been given the permission or opportunity to explore in other contexts or ever before in your life. When you have this opportunity to actually experience what it's like to be in a dominant space or to be in a more submissive space, this can allow you to really see who you are truly because society is often trying to tell us who we are and often trying to punish submissive behaviors or punish dominant behaviors, depending on what society wants out of us. And that can often depend on our gender roles, our professional roles, all kinds of things. For example, people who are in positions in which they have a lot of responsibility and maybe even a lot of power, and they hold a very dominant role in society, may want to explore a more submissive role. And this is why Fifty Shades of Grey is such a mixed bag for me as a pop culture phenomenon, 
because the first big moment of recognizing BDSM as a potential mainstream thing had been presented with this archetype of Christian Grey being an extremely powerful, extremely successful person with lots of responsibility who also loves to be extremely dominant in all of his intimate relationships and intimate encounters. However, this doesn't really jive with what would make a lot of psychological sense. In fact, I've found that people who have a position like that in their regular everyday lives and who have lived their lives out in that way often find it much more beneficial to experiment with submission. You know, they're at work all day with these heavy-duty responsibilities, and then they get home and they have this intimate relationship with somebody. They can share another side of themselves with that person. Now, does it mean that every time someone is holding lots of dominant roles with lots of responsibilities in their daily lives, that means that they also are more likely to hold a submissive role in their intimate lives? No, it's just, I think this pop culture phenomenon did present a very skewed archetype and a very weird way of looking at things. Now there was a 2002 film called Secretary, and I feel like the portrayal of this character, Mr. Grey, seemed to be much more genuine and much more of a three-dimensional character. And the way his secretary, Lee Holloway, ended up submitting to him based on her backstory and her upbringing made a lot of psychological sense. Now that was a major pop culture phenomenon as well, but it just wasn't as big. Now exploring these other sides of yourself within a BDSM dynamic, within a context in which it's playful, it's known to be a safe place, you've built a lot of trust with another individual or a set of individuals, this is a situation in which you can begin to inquire into yourself and discover and explore, am I submissive? Am I dominant? Am I a mixture of the two? What do I like to be? Where do I like to play? Because where you like to be, where you want to go in your life, that's really what BDSM has to offer you in the sense of telling you who you are. It's an experience of discovery. And so in that sense, yes, you do become more enlightened. You begin to light up your inner sense of how you like to interact with the outer world. So here's the next question. It's quite a fascinating one. Do you believe that limitations to attraction are all programmed constructs and that as we grow and expand our connection with the void, with cosmic energies and the truth about our individual existence, that we would all by default be completely pansexual in the absence of social conditioning, would desire simply be? It's interesting that this question begins by asking about limitations to attraction because it is fascinating to think about how we begin our lives feeling kind of limited in who we might be attracted to and that can evolve over time but really attraction isn't 
sexual in the beginning. I mean, it is. Everything in life is sexual. Life is essentially a sexual process. Even the psyches of those who identify as completely asexual have some sexuality with how they do things, how they interact with other people, unless they're completely socially cut off. But it's really fascinating. Like, for example, asexual partners may find that a candlelit dinner below the moonlight is the peak of erotica in their world. And that is the most intimate, close way to be next to each other. And in that way, we all live sexually. An additional example would be someone who builds, creates something. In a way, that act of creation is a lot like the act of procreation. It is a way of eternalizing yourself, just as many people feel the impulse to eternalize themselves by having children and then trying to have their own being echoed through those individuals. But going back to the question, and I'm going to repeat it again, do you believe that limitations to attraction are all programmed constructs? I think that attraction is part of experience, part of how you discover who you are. And really the things that we're attracted to are just things that have something to do with us. For instance, there is a majority tendency for men and women in a population that's evenly men and women to be attracted to the opposite sex. However, as that population shifts, let's say, if suddenly that population is only a quarter women and three quarters men, suddenly you're going to have a lot of that population, especially the male population, become homosexual. This is just an adaptation that's happening based on the environment around. So I wouldn't say that there's anything limiting occurring. And I wouldn't say that sexuality or attraction is a fixed phenomenon. But there is a developmental period within a person's life in which lots of the sexual identification is formulated. You don't hear about a lot of people discovering a whole new side of their sexuality way later in life. However, when I do hear about those people, they're often people that experience an extreme transformation in either their environment externally or their internal environment. For example, maybe they just did psychedelics or something like that and they had this huge awakening and suddenly they see the world completely differently. Now that kind of thing I totally believe can rewire your psyche completely. So in that sense, I, I do agree with what the end of your question proposes, which is as we grow and expand our connection with the void, with cosmic energies, and the truth about our individual existence that we would all, by default, be completely pansexual. If you're able to completely erase somebody's memory of absolutely everything about themselves, and you begin as a blank slate, 
technically that person is pansexual in that moment that they are kind of no one and nothing. What are they attracted to in that moment? They're attracted to everything around them. They're attracted to their experience of life. Kids love these bright toys that they're just introduced to because they're new, they're something that they can engage with, and most of all, it's something that's meant to be played with. It's meant for fun. So in the absence of social conditioning, would desire simply be? Yes, I think that when people are able to be fully present, they begin to realize, and, and I've actually arrived at this very much so, they begin to see that this is heaven. You're living it right now. Now I can understand that, that that can be a statement many people would disagree with strongly, and I get that and I understand that. However, there is something absolutely incredible about being present that can completely shift your perspective and help you to see that everything you need is in this moment. And if you really want to develop, heighten, and elevate your desires, the more present you are, the more you'll be able to begin recognizing that in some ways desire itself can be the problem, at least when it occurs in the mind, but when it occurs in the heart, it doesn't come with expectation. That's hard to explain. Um, I can get into more detail if you prompt me with other questions regarding this, but I'll leave it at that. I think that really covers the topic nicely. Here's the next question. How do you deal with your darkness? Meaning, as you work to embrace gratitude, joy, and boundless connection, how do you surmount your own desire to destroy, do harm, and rage? Now, for me, the biggest way that I deal with my darkness is really to play with it. And this goes back a lot to what I talk about with regard to BDSM. BDSM is a way to really tap into your darkness, find a way to channel your darkness through something that's healthy and it doesn't have to be with another partner for example for a long time i was channeling and developing my dominant side through what i called space doming it was just dominating my space and what i did was i would be extremely precise in particular about where everything went in my apartment. And the perfection was on the level of, I would say serial killer, but that would often be misinterpreted. So I'll say Dexter kind of serial killer, a very neat monster. So you asked, as I work to embrace gratitude, joy, and boundless connection, how do I surmount my own desire to destroy, do harm, and rage? Well, really, gratitude joy boundless connection those connect right in with destruction harm rage when you find a partner that is receptive towards that now um when i spent my time alone this desire to destroy do harm and rage you know i i uh it's it's strange but i i do feel like because I felt such a massive desire to have an outlet. For some reason, by simply being patient and waiting and doming my space and, and just 
being clear about what it was exactly I wanted to explore within BDSM with others, eventually a partner came along or a series of partners came along, at least over the long term, who allowed me the space to channel that dark side, to give that dark side expression, but in a context in which it was desired from the other end. Because the truth is, I don't want to give my dark side to someone who doesn't desire it. And this connects a lot in with my own experiences with sexuality and BDSM, which is if you become hedonistic about any desire, whether it be food, sex, or power, or knowledge, you eventually hit a dead end. You eventually hit a point at which you can't further feed this desire anymore to self-satisfy. And the only way to dive deeper into that desire is to fulfill the desire of another. And so there's nothing better <laughs> than actually having a desire to have an outlet for your dark side and then find someone who actually wants to receive your dark side, desires your dark side. Because in that case, the gratitude, the joy, and the connection, it's all there. It's all automatic. And it makes the desire infinite. Which when you realize it, that's the heaven that's sitting right in front of us all right now, at all times. We just simply need to connect the dots and recognize that and connect with each other and allow those desires to be fulfilled by simply asking for what it is we want, being clear about it, setting boundaries, communicating, and then playing. Who are you? That's the next question. Who am I? It's a very multi-layered answer, but to put it simply and succinctly, I'm an intellectual, I'm a wisdom nerd, I love philosophy, I find power in slowness, and I'm aware of a variety of interconnected realities that have the potential to transform individual lives on a very small level, all the way up to nurturing cultural transformations. All right, next question. What do you do? The work I do is actually incredibly simple. In fact, it's deceptively simple. And wisdom can be like that. In a way, it can almost sound like it's too good to be true. And it can also sound ridiculous, empty, like it doesn't have any depth to it. But the depth is discovered when I listen to you. So most of what I do is listen. Most of what I do is understand where you're coming from, what you're experiencing, the relationships, the hardships, the challenges, the circumstances, the context, the background, and even the mental state, the mental chatter, all the things that are going on, taking all of that into account. And what I do is I intuitively take all of that information, conscious and unconscious, and I decode it and reflect it back to you so that you can see yourself in a clearer way and I guide you into understanding who it is you are. If you're coming off as being very confused and unclear about what it is you want to do or who you are, 
I help guide you toward that clarity simply by showing you your confusion and also explaining to you some of the fundamentals of what you need to understand about your own mind and ways that you can wind your mind down a little and at least turn down the volume of the chatter that's happening in the background. But eventually, my goal is to give you complete silence from the chatter, a complete reprieve, complete peace. It's what I experience almost constantly. It's so wonderful, it's so beautiful. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. And for that reason, I want to help guide any individual who wants that silence, who wants that inner peace, and who wants to start harmonizing with others in their life, I want to help guide them toward whatever it is that they want in their life. I'm not pushing anybody in a particular direction other than to find themselves. As Sadhguru said, the way out is in. And this applies to individual struggles as well as large-scale, systemic, and societal struggles. And in many ways, I think a lot of people struggle with thoughts they have about society at large, where we're headed, what's going on, some of the struggles that, and the problems, the red flags and the warning signs we see ahead. And I think it can be helpful to hear my perspective and understand how the world can also find that tranquility. Of course, yes, it needs to be found on the inside, but in many cases, understanding how that tranquility can be created on the outside can be fundamental to enabling that tranquility to happen on the inside. Because if you think the world's hopeless, or if you think that a cynical perspective is what needs to be taken, it can be very hard to have inner stillness, inner calm, but I can show you how to take the turmoil within you and render it still. All right, next question. Why this? Why the work? Why the theme? The reasoning for Word Brewer as a project is because there's no better profession I can think to devote my life to. I'm fascinated by pretty much everything in the world. I love science, technology. I love following current events. I love learning about people's lives, backgrounds. I love learning about just about everything. And the work that I do is fundamentally essential for addressing every single problem in the world. Because at the center of every problem you see around you, is us. We are the doers. We are the creators. And we may not be doing it intentionally. In fact, by definition, we really aren't doing it intentionally. But what's happening is our minds are out of control. They've gone haywire. They've become compulsive. We've become addicted to thinking. And because of this addiction to thinking, we put ourselves in a lot of very problematic situations. Now, the intellect is powerful and incredible and can achieve miraculous outcome. But at the same time, those same miraculous outcomes can just as easily be twisted into self-destructive outcomes. 
So this work that I do has an existential component because I can go deep into nerdy territory, talking about economics, technology, the legal system. Although I'm not an expert on the legal system, I can at least address systemic issues with it. So I can go into the depth of detail on just about any topic with you. Whatever it is you want to nerd out about, I can dive into. And I think it's important to do so because many of our challenges that we experience in our everyday lives are connected to systemic issues as well. And simply understanding these systemic issues, how they can be solved, and how we can create a better world, one action at a time, one discovery at a time, is essential. So that's why I do this work. Now, another question was, why the theme? Why Word Brewer, distilling and demystifying wisdom? I say distilling wisdom, not only because it's clever as a word brewer kind of thing, but I'm sifting through great volumes of information and knowledge and understanding in order to provide you with the exact nugget of wisdom that you need in order to get past a psychological hurdle or an emotional struggle that you may be having. Now, this kind of mental yoga requires a sort of bravery and a sort of intellectual strength and endurance that not everybody has. And that's completely understandable. You kind of have to be somewhat of a brainiac to be into this kind of work. So distilling, while it is the process of making spirits or an essence by distilling, the second definition is equally important, which is the fact or process of extracting the essential meaning or most important aspects of something. And that's what I'm doing. I'm getting at the core and the heart of everything, really, when it comes to this wisdom. Now, if you can give me knowledge, give me a challenging problem to solve that I don't know how to solve, I will be overjoyed to have a project to work on. But honestly, we've solved all the problems and the solutions are sitting right in front of us. And the only thing that's preventing us from simply reaching forward, grabbing hold of the solution, implementing it, and making the world a better place very, very quickly is this blind spot that so many of us have in which our psyche is defending and protecting its sense of self. And the thing I work on is helping people to let go of their identity, of their psychological identity completely. And what happens when you do that is you open up your world, you crack it open, and you have a whole new way of perceiving and looking at everything. And you can now answer pretty much any question you might have for yourself with regard to where should I go? What should be my next move? What do I want in life? So this kind of wisdom I teach really renders you clear on what it is you want to do, where it is you want to go. Your compass knows and you don't have to think about what to do. Your intuition just tells you. And I'm not saying that thinking doesn't have its value. It absolutely does. 
but you learn to only use thought in an intentional way with care and only when it's really needed. Now, the other part of my tagline, so distilling and demystifying wisdom, the demystifying part is about bringing the wisdom to a person who has no interest perhaps in new age belief systems or approaches to life and also is extremely skeptical. So you don't have to give yourself over to mysticism or have faith in something or believe in me or trust me or trust my word. The things that I'm telling you, the guidance I'm giving, all of this is stuff you will explore for yourself. I'm giving you the guidance to inquire into yourself. You're the one that's going to need to actually do the work of inquiring into yourself, of doing these mental exercises and this breath work as well, if it's something that you like to explore, which all of it has a scientific basis. None of this is woo-woo. This is something you can experience directly. And there's also no need for psychedelics. Obviously, psychedelics have their value, but part of the reason why I recommend breathwork is because it can have some of the same benefits that psychedelics can provide. Mm -hmm.